Okay, let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for this beautiful Sabbath morning. We thank you for the strength that you've given us thus far in the quarter to do the tasks that we need to do. We pray for continued strength as we meet the rest of our exams this coming week and as we continue on through the quarter. And we ask that uh, you'll be with uh, Adam as he interacts with his residents. Uh, You know the difficulties he faces. And I pray that you will break the barriers down and enable him to connect to the people that he works with. Bless us now as we study your word. May your spirit guide us and direct us. May we clear, more clearly grasp uh, what you mean and who you are and how you operate in the plan of salvation. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. We got one statement read last week. We are on the portion of the forensic sounding statements of Ellen White uh, called mediation and intercession and we got 27 read with the notes so uh, you want the two documents uh, that I handed back last week uh, the short version of the forensic statements that, media- that starts with mediation and intercession and th- the document thoughts on mediation and intercession statements. And I'll go ahead and begin by reading number 28 on that handout. Jesus is our advocate, our high priest, our intercessor. Our position is like that of the Israelites on the Day of Atonement. When the high priest entered the most holy place, representing the place where our high priest is now pleading, and sprinkled the atoning blood upon the mercy seat, no propitiatory sacrifices were offered without. While the priest was interceding with God, every heart was bowed in contrition, pleading for the pardon of transgression. How do we unpack that? If if God is just like Jesus and Jesus doesn't have to plead with him to forgive us, how is he how is Jesus our advocate, our high priest and our intercessor? How does that work? Um I know in Hebrews 9 it talks a lot about that. Um um uh I forgot actually what verse in in Hebrews, but talks about when Christ came and died for our sins, he entered the most holy place once and for all, not with the blood of calves and bulls and rams, but by his own blood, um, obtaining uh, eternal redemption for all. So I, I, I think, I, I think, um, uh, as a high priest, I, I, since um uh high priest is supposed to intercede um the the only thing i can think of right now is when jesus was on the cross and said for father forgive them for they know what not what they do um kind of pleading with the father on the cross as a high priest so but i'm mm-hmm. i'm not entirely sure but those are just some thoughts i guess okay so then does the father need to be pled with in order to forgive us how does that work? Um, look at the, look again at the additional statements on meditation and intercession, and let's look at number one. 
the work of Christ as man's intercessor is presented in that beautiful prophecy of Zechariah concerning him whose name is the branch. Says the prophet, he will build the temple of the Lord and he shall be the glory and shall sit on and rule upon his father's throne. And he shall be a priest upon his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the love of the Father, no less than that of the Son, is the fountain of salvation for the lost race. Said Jesus to his disciples before he went away, I say not to you that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loveth you. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And in the ministration of the sanctuary above, the counsel of peace shall be between them both. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So if she makes that clear, and, and all the other statements, she makes it equally clear. Why does she say, why did the, and the Bible says this too. Christ is our advocate, our high priest, and our, uh, let's see what the word is here, and our intercessor. It's that intercessor that, that really stands out, isn't it? Advocate in the, in the Greek, the word advocate is Paracletos, or sometimes we refer to as the Paraclete. Uh, Paraclete is someone who stands alongside of us. Okay, he's our defense. Is he defending us against the Father or against something else? Do you remember from reading these statements what Jesus is defending us against? There was a Satan's accusation against us. Is that what you're you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. If that's the case, and he's he is defending us against Satan's accusations or charges against us, then to whom is he? Is he just trying to get Satan quiet, or is there something bigger going on? If you look at Daniel 7, and this is one of the clearest places. Well, I'll just tell you. Daniel 7 portrays God and the Son of Man, one who is like the Son of Man who comes before God. But he's surrounded by thousands and ten thousands and thousands of thousands of beings. Okay? And the books are open and the court sits in judgment. What are those beings doing there in that court? They must be the ones who are judging us and maybe considering the validity of, of Satan's accusation. It would seem that way, wouldn't it? it would, and, and this, I, I don't think they are our judge, as it were, because uh, Christ is our judge. But at the same time, what stands in that court is the truth, and the truth stands on the basis of evidence. Okay, so so. The way I understand the court structure of of the onlooking universe is that uh, the truth must be substantiated, and God is not going to insist that the angels and the, and people from other planets accept us into eternity just on His say so. God doesn't run His universe on claims. He runs it on evidence, and every being in the universe must be satisfied that what he, his, that his judgment is correct. Uh, that's kind of the heart of the first angel's message: the hour of his judgment has come. There has to be validity 
given God by the universe to the judgment he makes. That God, it isn't that God is insecure and that he can't make the decision. It's that he just does not run the universe on force. And any other way is the use of force. It's, it's basically saying, line up, shake their hands, welcome them in, <laughs> and no, no questions. And that's the use of force. So that's how I see this operating. And for that reason, Jesus, because he is our representative, he took Adam's, Adam would have been up there in the courts as our representative if we had never fallen. But because Adam fell, Jesus took our place, took his place as our representative. And he stands up there as our representative defending our right to be part of that council, defending our, his right to help us. And if you read, reread these statements in this handout, additional statements on mediation and intercession, uh, I'm not asking you to read them right now, but if you read them sometime, she makes it clear that what also is going on is that Satan is trying to accuse us to ourselves and weaken our hold on God and get us to distrust him. And so that part of what Jesus is doing is, is insisting on the right to help us through that experience. And, and that as long as we keep asking him for help, he can come to our aid and our rescue. Does that make sense? And and that way, we don't have Jesus trying to plead with the Father. The Father's in perfect agreement with him. But he is he is offsetting Satan's charges to the unlucky universe. And, and that's why Paul says, you know, we're a theater. This world is a theater of the universe. The actual Greek word there is theatron, mm-hmm. which means theater. Uh, we're 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 on display, as it were, before the universe. Any any questions or observations uh, before we move on? Really quick. Um, it, seems, <clears throat> it seems like both God and us might be on trial in some sense, because isn't that the purpose of, of the cross, is to vindicate God's character? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Any, any comments on, on that? Yeah, yeah. How, is that, how do we work that in? Well, every time, every time we mess up, which we do, we, we, in a sense, we bring harm to God's reputation. We, we misrepresent him to others around us. And we, in a sense, misrepresent him to the universe. And Satan runs in and he says, <clears throat> see, they're really mine. Look at how they messed up. Um, and one of Satan's attempts has been to wear God down to the point where he would lose his love for us. He, this is this is not this is not a virtual reality. This is this is an, a reality that involves the whole person, whether it's God's whole person or whether it's us. Uh, it involves him emotionally. It involves him psychologically. It involves in, in every way. Sin harms everything about us, and and so there's it's a very real struggle that's going on, and and God will not change, and he. he he will not back down, but Satan still tries. It is, it, his insanity <laughs> does not allow him to see the truth that he's beating his head against a wall. And my perception is that God's role is to 
stand back as it were and let things play out so that everything is up for discussion everything is up for deliberation everything is up for weighing evidence and and the evidence is paramount not his say so not his ability to argue this is this is a, a situation where arguments alone don't win the case it's based on based on the evidence what is the, the kind of evidence that jesus uses to support us what does he plead if, if you use old uh, old-fashioned language he pleads something do you remember he pleads his blood <laughs> what does that mean We're going we're to get to that when we when we deal with the Bible. Uh, we're going to talk about the blood, but I'm going to give it to you now in a nutshell. It, looking at it through the Bible, comparing Scripture with Scripture, I've come to the conclusion that blood represents the truth about God and about sin, as revealed by the cross. Uh, Couldn't he also plead our ignorance at the same time? Well, like forgive them; they don't know what yeah, they're doing. Yeah, yeah, he he does that too. But but the basis on which he has the right to save us is 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 the blood is is the fact that Jesus demonstrated the truth and we ha- it, to the extent that we accept the truth and we live in the truth we're safe to save and and we show that by trusting by trusting him that's why it's righteousness by faith not works okay and that trust is ratified then by our works. Because faith is never passive, it's always active. It's, it's trust that God wants. It's a trusting relationship that he wants. So um, let's uh, go to the thoughts on meditation intercession statements. I didn't completely answer your question about God's vindication. It seems to me that the same evidence that establishes God's right to save us establishes God's vindication as well. And, and he, all that needs to happen is they plead that evidence. Uh, okay, so uh, let's move to number 28. It's the second page in the thoughts on mediation intercession. And we're going to skip the first paragraph. So, uh, Jonathan, why don't you read the second paragraph? One also needs to read the rest of the article. After discussing at length how only God, Christ, could fully reveal God the Father, she says. Christ represented the Father to the world, and he represents before God the chosen ones in whom he has restored the moral image of God. They are his heritage. To them, he says, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. No man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father but the Son. And he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. No priest, no religionist can reveal the Father to any son or daughter of Adam. Men have only one advocate, one intercessor, who is able to pardon transgression. Shall not our hearts swell with gratitude to him who gave Jesus to be the propitiation of our sins? Think deeply upon the love that the Father has manifested in our behalf, the love that he has expressed for us. We cannot measure his love, 
for measurement there is none. Can we measure infinity? We can only point to Calvary, to the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I'd like to stop there. This is a confusing paragraph, isn't it? It's like she switches. But she's actually clarifying what propitiation is and what advocate means. Advocacy is Jesus revealing the Father to us. That's how he is our mediator. It isn't, and he presents us to the Father uh, for the pardon of transgression. But this is not something the Father's, no, 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 okay, okay, I, 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 I accept your blood. You know, it's, it's not that kind of a relationship at all. Um, in fact, I am tempted to believe I haven't found enough evidence to support this yet. But there's a hint of it in, in the story of the product, parable of the prodigal son. When the older brother ref- is angry and refuses to go into the party, remember? Mm-hmm. He's out there sulking. And the father goes out, Luke says, to intercede with him. And the question has to be given, who is, God, who is Jesus interceding with? It's not the father. Is it with us? No. Jesus reveals the Father to us. We're the ones hostile, estranged, and alienated. Yeah, it's like switched. And and is propitiation possibly? We're the ones that in a sense have to be brought in back to trust and so on. It's, It's a very different way of looking at propitiation. Because it, it's very clear in the context of what she's saying is that Christ's mediatorial work is to reveal the Father to us. And, and that rests upon an idea that we're going to come to when we deal with the biblical evidence. Uh, when we talk about the judgment, Jesus makes it clear in John 3 and also in John 12 that the judgment God, Jesus really doesn't judge us. The judgment is, the tr- is this, that God sends light into the world and we decide about the light. In other words, the judgment is our decision about God, not God's decision about us. Wow. That's, that's painting a completely different picture than we have commonly. We, we have commonly believe that the whole sin problem is a problem with God instead of a problem with ourselves and with sin. So God is the one who kills us. God is the one who has to forgive us. God is the one who has to be pled to forgive us. God is the one who needs the blood. God is the one, etc., etc. It's all about God and his, his being the whole crux. But what if it's really that sin causes death and therefore the whole problem is the choices we make and everything God does is investing in us to bring us back to him. So that then God is pleading with us. Uh, Jesus sacrifices for us. Um, and it was supposed to bring us back to trust. So think about that as we move along. Um, Adam, why don't you go ahead and read the next paragraph. 
After quoting much of Jesus' prayer in John 17, where he intercedes for his disciples, she continues, Thus the great intercessor presents his petition to the Father. No middleman comes between the sinner and Christ. No dead prophet, no buried saint is seen. Christ himself is our advocate. All that the Father is to his Son, he is to those whom his Son in humanity represented. In every line of his work, Christ acted as a representative of the Father. He lived as our substitute and surety. He labored as he would have his followers labor, unselfishly, appreciating the value of every human being for whom he suffered and died. Read the next paragraph. The promise of the Father was pledged that if Christ clothed his divinity in humanity, if he endured the test that Adam failed to endure, his obedience would be counted as righteousness to his people. Thus he would conquer in their behalf and place them on vantage ground. Thus they would be given a probation in which they might return to their loyalty by keeping God's law. And in this, Christ would see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Let me suggest something. That God has a a really difficult problem. And, And, you know, we... Our, our picture of the sovereignty of God has not helped us to really understand the great controversy. We, ha- we have seen God as all-powerful. Uh, nothing is too hard for him, which is true. But we have failed to give a realistic picture of who he really is. That His sovereignty is not arbitrary. He will never be arbitrary. He will never use force. He will never use the measures that we tend to use down here uh, to try to get people to do what we want them to do. So we assume, we, we place on God our own picture of him that he will behave much like we do. And, and so we, we use our own parenting model where we coax and, and manipulate <laughs> and um, attempt to to almost coerce our children into obedience. We tend to see that in in God. But the truth is that God has the difficulty of, he can't use deception like Satan can. He cannot use manipulation or force. He cannot be arbitrary. Now you put all that aside, then God is dependent upon carrying the universe with him. God does not act autonomously, arbitrarily. He carries his universe with him. And therefore, because of the nature of sin, because it wasn't clear that sin leads to death, he had to establish that in order to have a basis by which he could save us. Because Satan claimed every sin must meet its punishment. If they sin, they die. That is an inflexible rule. You cannot change it. And God had to show that's not true. If I show the truth about sin, and I show the truth about Satan, and I show the truth about myself, I can win them back to trust. So I think that's, that's what she's talking about here. By by being obedient to the sufferings of the cross, by by Jesus showing what obedience is and how to do it, 
he could give by giving that example to us we could say okay by trusting his father like he trusted his father by by spending time with him as he spent time with him by um understanding the nature of what obedience really is that it isn't just keeping rules it's it's loving and being allowing god to love us so that we can love others um and understanding the model that Jesus gave us, everything can change. Go ahead. Okay, so some of the language she uses, I recognize from a lot of other theologians and pastors, like mm-hmm. Christ had to do everything that we couldn't do in order mm-hmm. to, so like, mechanistically... Substitute insurance. Yeah. Um, but you're saying, right there. you're saying it's different it's not like a mechanistic thing it's like a demonstration it is okay it is. everything rests upon demonstration okay. of evidence yeah and and we're going to get to that when when we start comparing uh, the bible with the ancient near east and look at substitution we're we're going to really get into this and it's going to become much clearer okay tara is any of this done to change the Father's mind? Was the Father only willing to forgive us if Jesus pledged to be our substitute and surety? This is reading something into her words that contradicts what she says in the Great Controversy. If we accept and fully believe what she says in The Desire of Ages, page 764, that death is the inevitable result of sin, and thus God runs the moral and spiritual universe on invoyable and unchangeable laws of cause and effect, then Jesus' life and death make possible to happen what otherwise could not take place. It does not change God's mind. Okay, um, why don't we move to number 29, and I'll read that. It's a short one, but it's pithy. The incense ascending with the prayers of Israel represents the merits and intercession of Christ. His perfect righteousness, which through faith is imputed to his people and which alone can make the worship of sinful human beings acceptable to God. Before the veil of the most holy place was an altar of perpetual intercession before the holy and altar of continual atonement. By blood and by incense, God was to be approached Symbols pointing to the great mediator through whom sinners may approach Jehovah and through whom alone mercy and salvation can be granted to the repentant, believing soul. So, what do we do with that? I have a very long response to that paragraph. (laughs) It's a very short paragraph, but it requires a lot of unpacking. Why don't we read it first and and then come back and discuss. So, uh, Jonathan, you want to read the first paragraph there on the thoughts document. Let's look at the word merits first. What does it mean? Late medieval Christianity envisioned the giant ledger in heaven in which the merits and demerits of sinners were kept for the day of judgment. If a person's good deeds outweighed their bad deeds... They were judged worthy of heaven. If their sins outweighed their righteous deeds, they went to hell or purgatory. One could gain merit by a number of practices, penance, praying, embarking on pilgrimages, giving alms or 
buying indulgences. The reformers opposed this entire system, declaring that Jesus' merits ad- adequately covered the sinner. It is through this lens that the term merit merits has come down to us. To one coming out of late medieval legalism, such a concept would be good news indeed. Okay. Any questions or observations about that paragraph? I think it's helpful to understand the history behind terms before we start saying, is Ellen White really using it in this manner? Okay, Adam, why don't you read the next paragraph? Uh, To us, who have not carried the baggage of legalism, the term really conveys the value or worthiness of Jesus' death as opposed to our death, if we were to die eternally. Only Jesus, as stated above, could reveal the Father's character, Only he could show us how to live a sinless life. Only he could die the death that forever settled the the questions about sin, its results, and the nature of God's wrath and justice. Now let's turn to the word imputed. Once again, this word is taken from the same context as the word merits. The Reformers taught that the merits of Christ's righteous deeds were imputed or applied to the account of those who accepted Christ's righteousness to counter their sins so that every sin was forgiven. Without Christ's merit so applied, the sins remained. Ellen White taught the same metaphor very similarly. It is rightly called a metaphor because common sense would tell us, if we applied it literally, that Jesus could not have possibly been enough in quantity to cancel the many sins of the millions who would, have be, who would be saved. The late medieval church ran into this problem and solved it by the legalistic means outlined above. Of course, one could argue, as I believe the reformers did, that Jesus' righteousness qualitatively outweighed the sins of all sinners, including the vilest of them. And this they approached more closely to what I believe lies behind this metaphor. To understand the imputed righteousness of Christ, we need to look at Abraham and Paul's use of this idea. In Genesis 15, God promises Abraham that his descendants would multiply like the stars of the sky. Verse 6 states, And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Note that it doesn't say the Lord reckoned the merits of Christ's righteousness to him. Yet this verse is about imputed righteousness, and it means the same thing. Paul takes up in Romans 4, where he outlines that Abraham had faith in God, that he was able to do what he had promised. Therefore, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now the words, it was reckoned to him, were written for his sake alone, but uh, not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Verses 22 to 24. Paul goes on in in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, to say, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. Any questions or observations at this point? Okay. Um, You want to read, Adam, the next paragraph? How is it that our faith, our trust in God, is reckoned to us as righteousness? To understand this, we only need to remember what led us to sin in the first place. Um, what led our first parents to eat, uh, eat the fruit God clearly told them not to eat? 
They believed lies about God, substituting those lies for the evidence of the truth about him that lay all around them, lies that led them to distrust him and his love. Furthermore, they no longer believed that their sin would lead to death, and in the vacuum that belief created, Satan supplied a punitive God waiting to punish them for their sins. The fear this created deepened their distrust of God. To kill the weed of sin, God had to go after its roots, distrust. Merely to command his disobedient children to obey would not work. The root of sin ran so deep throughout the system of humanity that such a command would only strengthen it through fear instead of trust. That's why Paul makes it clear that keeping the law, no matter how arduously one tried, only made one worse instead of better. But how could God regain our trust, manipulate our minds, order us to trust him? Do we understand how utterly impossible, impossible that is psychologically? We cannot, under command to do so, trust someone we are afraid of. The law of trust is the law of trustworthiness. Someone must reveal the character of God to us, and only one person in the entire universe could do that perfectly, Jesus Christ. It is through his merits, the revelation of the character of the Father, the revelation of the truth about sin and its consequences, about obedience now made possible, that we are saved from fear, distrust, Satan's lies, and thus sin. Those merits are accounted sufficient to make us whole. The truth can set us free from Satan's lies. The trust it engenders enables healing to take place. For this reason, God can use the merits of Christ, the revelation of his character, as the basis for saying, I can save them because they trust in me. No wonder when Ellen Wright summarized the Gospels, she said, Christ exalted the character of God, attributing to him the praise and giving to him the credit of the whole purpose of his own mission on earth, to set men right through the revelation of God, and Christ was arrayed before men the paternal grace and the matchless perfections of the Father. In his prayer, just before his crucifixion, he declared, I have manifested thy name. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. When the object of his mission was attained, the revelation of God to the world, the Son of God announced that his work was accomplished and that the character of the Father was made manifest to men. Does that make sense? In other words, this whole concept of the merits of Christ fulfilled a need that was brought about by medieval Catholicism where you had to gain enough merit to offset your evil deeds in order to gain heaven. And no, so the reformers said no. Jesus' merit is sufficient. By Jesus' merits we are saved. Um, that became fraught with all kinds of legal baggage still so that we didn't really understand it. And what it really means is that Jesus', Jesus worthiness is that he revealed the Father. And based on the worthiness of Jesus revealing the Father's worthiness, we come back to trust him. And it's our trust that God counts as righteousness. Because if we trust him, he can heal the damage done. Any questions, observations, or comments? That one sentence you wrote, uh, that's why Paul makes it clear that keeping the law, no matter how arduously you know, one tried, makes one worse instead of better. Like, could you expound on that a little bit? And what, How does it make us worse people? Have you ever run into a person who tried that? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, I'm talking about people 
in the church who try very hard to be perfect and they try so hard they they obsess on it and and it makes them worry it's like trying to put out a forest fire by stamping at it i stamp out this sin oh there's another one i stamp out that sin oh there's another one or worse yet you have this long list of computer rules print out okay today i'm not going to do the following right I'm going to obey. Tomorrow, I'm not going to do so. By the end of the list, I am feeling fairly perfect. And I ignore the long, long list of rules. It's, it's just simply impossible. And what it does, it makes us feel self-righteous. And thus we then lord it over other people who aren't as righteous as we. We become unbearably judgmental and critical. And, and really, what is the righteousness God wants besides trust? It's love, isn't it? Most people who keep, try very hard to keep the law absolutely are the most unloving people around. So that's that's what I mean by that. Yeah. Um, it's 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 very very well evident that, um, especially through Paul, that um, uh, we're just by by faith, um, and that and and because of that faith, Jesus is able to um, to um, heal us from our sins, um, and. And his blood was an, um, ca- is capable of imputing uh, righteousness on us. I, I guess you say I, I'm not uh, sure. That's using legal terminology. How would you say that same statement in a, a a different setting, a more trust healing model setting? Yeah. Um, non legal. Yeah. So um, my main question is. Um, so we're justified by faith through through Jesus um, Jesus blood. Jesus blood was enough um, uh, to to save us. We don't have to worry about following a law or doing so many things to be able to earn anything. Paul clearly says in Romans four, um, um, uh, he talks about works and. Um, what is what, what you need to work for? Um, what you get from that is what is due. Um, mm-hmm. And Romans four and it talks about how you can't do anything whatsoever to earn salvation. Right. So, so since um, since since we um, faith is needed for justification, what about someone who doesn't have faith? How do they get that faith? Paul's answer to that would be faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God or what is said, read about Christ. Um, that's a, that's a, an answer that has to be unpacked. To me, you cannot trust someone you do not know. And until we know God as he really is, we cannot trust him. And it's by coming to know him 
And I, I personally think we have to specifically pray to know him as he really is and not to believe Satan's lies. For me, that's the only way it came. Uh, because forever I was bouncing back and forth between Satan's lies about God and, and the truth about God. And finally I realized I had to pray specifically that God would uh, take those lies away and, 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 and replace them with the truth. That, by the way, is substitution. Uh, the original substitution is the exchange we made for the truth about God, for a lie. And, and the, the substitution that Jesus makes is reversing that and giving us the truth instead of the lie. Um, so, so to me, that is the basis for trust. That, that is what has to happen, is that I can come to trust him. And for me, where that meeting place was as a 14-year-old teenager and a dyed-in-the-wool legalist I had been raised to keep the rules, was that when I visited the whole picture of what God did in the Old Testament, I just in imagination uh, took the journey through the Old Testament, seeing a God, a different God than I had been raised to worship, a God who, whose only goal was to win us back to trust and who did everything in his power to do that. And finally, he comes himself in the person of Jesus and and I followed him to the cross. And when I heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, I realized a God that would go that far to win me back was a God that would never hurt me, a God that would never do anything to harm me. He was a God I could trust. I could feel safe with him. And and since that and, and it was a it was a total conversion experience. I was a new person. I came to repentance. I had I had all the marks of of um, being born again, including that I now loved other people. The week before, I had been absolutely cold and critical and overbearing uh, toward people. I, w- I sat with my best friend at camp meeting <clears throat> and criticized everybody in in my line of vision. <laughs> And um, it was it was a total switch, complete change from that to loving people. So when we're talking about this paradigm change, and that's really what we're talking about, it's a paradigm change from a legalist to a person who is a, a born-again Christian, that, that is a paradigm change that is totally life-transforming. Um, it, it completely transforms us in character. And for some people, it's, it's a long process. Other people's it's more dramatic, like mine, um, and then a long process after that of, of slowly uh, being transformed. Okay, we we made it through two paragraphs. <laughs> we have four more to go. This is good. I I wanted to get through this quickly uh, before the end of the quarter so that we can begin the new sequence. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you that you have provided a way by which we can come to trust you. And we pray that you will apply that to us, that we will forsake Satan's lies about you for the truth, that we will come to relinquish our fears of you and completely trust you as you really are. Teach us your ways 
and help us to walk in them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.